I'm Maxine McHugh, and this is Talking Teaching. And my worry is that we have got a more and more stratified system here, and that while we can say, whatever the circumstance, the really bright kids will come through, we make it hard for the ones who are in disadvantaged circumstances. Hi there, good to have your company. Australia has produced many significant figures in education, but right up there with an impeccable global reputation is Barry McGaw. After a lifetime of achievements in his specialist field of assessment and statistics, he remains a valued colleague as Emeritus Professor here at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. To see him in front of an audience of teachers and policymakers is to see a master presenter, someone who brings the raw figures alive with stories of achievement and challenge. Starting his professional life as a science teacher in Toowoomba, Barry McGaw's subsequent rise through academia saw him take the helm at the Australian Council for Education Research and then on to the Directorship of Education with the OECD in Paris. This was followed by his highly consequential involvement as founding chair of ACARA, the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority. There, under Barry's leadership, the hard work on developing and getting agreement across the states on a new national curriculum was completed. Like many of his generation, his lifetime goal has been to advocate for greater equity in Australian education. He's always put a high value on his own schooling at Indrapilly State High in Brisbane in the 1950s, where Nobel Prize winner Peter Doherty and journalist George Negus were also contemporaries. So Talking Teaching's Kerry Elliott decided it was time to sit down with Barry McGaw and talk to him about some of the continuing challenges in education. Kerry began by asking Barry about the shifting emphasis in the curriculum. Well, one of the questions people ask these days when they're either critiquing a curriculum or thinking about developing a new one is what to do with what's often called uh, 21st century skills. I, I think that's a very odd name, frankly, because when you ask what they are, they say, oh, capacity to work with others. And I say, you think that wasn't important when the pyramids were being built? But nevertheless, they mean by it certain more generic skills than are traditionally seen as the focus of subjects. And you ask, well, why Why do people think that's where we ought to be focusing? And to what extent ought the focus be there? Is it something in addition or is it something instead of traditional subjects? That was an issue we had to resolve right at the beginning in developing the national curriculum. Now, there's a couple of considerations that I think are crucial in this. One is it's often said that this is what industry and commerce want because if you ask the leaders, the business leaders, what they want in their employees, they will name things like capacity to work with others, communication skills, intercultural understanding, If they're, uh, particularly if they're working in multicultural settings or even international multicultural settings. But I think one of the problems is the answer that you get to the question you put is a function of the question you ask. Because if you say to business leaders, what do you want in your employees? They have to answer about what they want in all their employees, not just specific subgroups. If you said, what do you want in your engineers? They would say, not only capacity to work with others, communication skills and so on, they'd talk about the engineering competences that they want, specific to the domain, the disciplines of engineering. 
So I think we've we've done ourselves a disservice by framing a question in a way that invites only a generic answer. So you only get generic skills being named. So we took the view on those grounds that we oughtn't to focus on those alone or we ought to be cautious about that. But there's some more fundamental reasons for which we ought not to abandon the, the disciplines, the traditional disciplines. And among the most compelling of those is research in psychology on the differences between novices and experts. Now, that work showed that novices and experts solve problems differently because they represent the problems differently. And you could see the difference in representation was a function of the deep understanding of the domain that the experts had. They could look at a problem and say, oh, it's one of those, and they'd set up the problem in a way that's defined by their deep understanding of the domain. A lot of the early work was done with physics and maths problems and so on. Uh, Alan Lesgall did some interesting work on radiology, but there was one study in particular I like to tell people about that studied the difference between novices and experts in solving political science problems. And the study showed, just as the others had, that the experts solved the problems differently from the novices because they set up the problem differently. The experts were high-level researchers. The novices were undergraduates majoring in political science, mm -hmm. not raw beginners. But this study added a third group who were high-level research chemists. Their problem representation and their solution strategies looked like those of the novices, not the experts. So the idea that let's give these generic skills and they'll translate to everything is just a nonsense. We don't get transfer everywhere. So we may well and we ought to focus on the generic competences, but we should also focus upon deep understanding in domains of knowledge. So how do you represent that in the curriculum? Well, there's two ways, actually. One is to say, well, we'll have the disciplines and we'll add these as extras. And in a way, the Victorian curriculum used to look like that. They had the the disciplines named and then they had the VELs, the Victorian Essential Learning, so there were another set of things. And it looked like an expansion of the curriculum. Now, we asked the question of whether the same content that would be the content through which the deeper knowledge of the disciplines was developed could also be the content that dealt with the generic competences or what we call general capabilities. And uh, that's the approach we took. And we actually show in the Australian curriculum for each of the pieces of content in the curriculum whether or not it's relevant for any of the general capabilities. Now, not all of them are, of course, but uh, where they are, this is emphasised. And so our argument is that you don't have to add a whole lot of content. You have to pay attention to the competencies you're developing with the content you're dealing with. And I think I remember you talking to a group of schools recently and it was quite interesting talking about these general capabilities that majority of them aren't necessarily transferable. Yeah, I think problem solving is a good example of one that's not transferable. And I mean, that study in political science essentially shows that. Trouble with the words problem solving is it sounds like it's a single skill, but problem solving in history is not the same as problem solving in physics. It's just a pair of words we use to describe something that has different manifestations. Whereas if you think about intercultural understanding, you could develop that in literature, certainly in history, uh, geography. You could develop in civics and citizenship. So there are some that could be developed across a broader range of subjects than others. Do you think it's changed, curriculum? I think it's changed in two respects. It's changed in the respect that we've been talking about. That mm -hmm. is that there's more systematic attention to these general capabilities, um, even though it doesn't necessarily mean expanding the curriculum, 
It expands the way we talk about the curriculum and the kinds of focus we have. The other important way in which it's changed is that we are much more alert these days to developmental continua. What is it that you need to learn first in mathematics in order to learn the next thing and the next thing and so on? How well can we define a developmental progression through which we'd expect our students to move as they acquire uh, more knowledge, more understandings and deeper competences in the domain? We're better at that in some subjects than others because there's a stronger research base Mm -hmm. um, in maths and science. There's a strong research base in the literacy component of language, but maybe not the literature component. And there are attempts in the Australian curriculum in each of the subjects to pay heed to these dimensions. The other idea that's been given more prominence is, particularly in domains like science, where there is so much that could be in the curriculum and you need some way of deciding what to include and what not. There, an idea that's emerged is to focus on what are the big ideas in science and to... Uh, make sure that if there's choices about content, you include the content that best facilitates the, the development of these big ideas in students. A lot of my colleagues, we talk about there is so much in the curriculum. How do you possibly tackle it all? And I guess what's a good way to go about covering all of this? Well, it's easier for primary schools in some ways because they can integrate more readily than secondary schools, which tend to be organised around disciplines and dealt with by different teachers. So some integrated um, instruction in the primary schools is a way, I think, that deals with the content. The other thing, of course, that made the content look bigger is that the, and indeed to some extent did make it more extensive, was the Melbourne Declaration adopted by the Council of Education Ministers, which then framed the scope of the curriculum, added some things. So it put in business and economics. It put in digital technologies alongside the traditional technologies and, and through digital technologies, students are learning to code. Now, So this is all adding more yeah, and more and for yeah, schools to do. Yeah. yeah. So therefore, you have to, in a sense, whenever you put stuff in, work out what to take out. Now, when you commission people to write a curriculum, as we did, and say this is the number of hours you expect students to have, no more, they're all specialists in their subjects. They all love their subjects and they all overestimate what can be done. So all of our first drafts of the curriculum, in fact, had too much in it and had to be winnowed back. And the the science one in particular, when we winnowed it, we used the guiding principle, what are the big ideas, to work out what to take out, not just what to put in in the first place, but what to take out when too much was there. Maybe there's still more, but the other thing we found was when in the early periods as it was being implemented, some schools were having no trouble at all. Now, do you design a curriculum that every school can cope with? Or do you let the really good ones set the challenge for the others? You work with lots of different groups around the world. Do you see similar sorts of patterns in terms of that growing shift towards these general capabilities? Yes, that's the almost universal phenomenon. Um, but, But in some places, it does sound like it's a replacement for content. And the UNESCO work I'm doing at the moment is working against that, trying to preserve the kind of structure we have in the Australian curriculum. So thinking about assessment, I know that, you know, part of your work with ACARA and part of the work around the development of my school, NAPLAN, where do you think we're going well? Two examples. Um, I'll go back to a curriculum one first. Mm -hmm. In the 1990s, I reviewed the high school certificate in New South Wales for the New South Wales government. And New South Wales, kind of uniquely in Australia, had a highly differentiated curriculum. There were five different levels of maths courses at year 11 and 12 four in English, 
The standard model was three in geography and history and so on. And that looked like a very clever way of catering for individual differences. Well, I had results for students in the state in assessments in literacy and numeracy, English and maths, at year 10. And so I looked at the students who were doing well at year 10 to see what subjects they were enrolled in at year 11 and 12. And I, I put aside the private schools and the selective government high schools and just looked at the regular government high schools in the northern beach suburbs, which is higher SES, higher socioeconomic status, and the southwest of Sydney. And students who were in the top 10% at year 10, or even in the top quarter at year 10, in the northern beach suburbs, were most likely to be doing one of the two most demanding of the four English courses. And students in the southwestern suburbs of Sydney, similarly in the high-performing groups at year 10, were most likely to be doing one of the two least demanding courses. You say, well, why? Why are these students mm. not different in achievement six, 12 months ago, now doing very different courses in their final years of schooling? And the answer was obvious enough when you asked. The schools in the north didn't offer the two least demanding and the schools in the southwest didn't offer the two most demanding by and large. So what looked like a differentiation to cater for individual differences on paper at the school level didn't, it actually caused these kids to diverge. So I recommended that there be less differentiation in the curriculum at year 11 and 12 and the government accepted that but 10 years later, New South Wales has introduced differentiated courses again and that suits their selective high schools well and some of the more elite private schools. So we often, in ways that are not intended, build in differentiated provisions that that uh, work against equity. But on a, your other question's assessment, one of the biggest problems in Australian schools' assessments is that we're still living with Brendan Nelson's everybody must be marked on an A to E scale. And that's essentially a normative distribution. So a student can go year after year of schooling getting an E. And the implication being that student's always doing badly. Maybe even worse, that student's not improving. Whereas, in fact, that student is improving. That student's mm. moving up the developmental continuum. What we really need is an assessment regime that reports where students are on the developmental continuum, not simply where they stand this year in relation to other students. That could be easily done. We've got the means to do it. That's what the NAPLAN scales do, actually. The NAPLAN scales, of course, also give comparative information to parents. Where's, what's the national average? What's the state average? What's the school's average? And so on. But it does show when you look at year three, year five, year seven, year nine, where you stand in those successive years on the same scale, showing growth. Do you see us heading in that direction? Well, there are lots of voices pressing for it, and I think we should, and we could. I, I doubt if we'd be willing, and I, I'd floated this idea once recently, why don't we take all the year levels off the curriculum? Don't say this is year one, this is year two, this is year three, but just say this is a maths curriculum. This specifies a developmental progression that you can expect to make. We'll show you from year to year where you are. And what did people say to that? Oh, they all say it's a good idea, but... Yeah. <laughs> do they have the courage to do it? No. <laughs> Jeff Masters has floated the same idea. Any other countries around the world doing that sort of thing? There's a lot of moves to do a more formative assessment that shows how students are progressing and what they need to do next to progress. Dylan William in particular doing that. And there's a lot of work on developmental progressions, but ultimately education plays also a kind of sorting role, particularly at the end of school. So the normative components 
are present. So, I, I mean, I argue that it's not one or the other, actually. Even look mm-hmm. at the NAPLAN scales. There's normative information in the result the parent gets as well as the, the standards reference information. We produced a way of reporting year 12 results in Sydney that shows both a standards reference position with respect to the level of learning required in the curriculum as well as the normative which is where do you stand in relation to other students in the subject. So it gets both. Students still get that. We had a a discussion, I know, offline before around equity and funding. And I know there's been some talk in the papers lately about the difference between rural and regional and metropolitan schools and things. Is that too simplistic to be looking at funding in, in that manner? The impact of funding is positive but weak. The OECD data shows that if you look at countries' level of funding per student and their achievement, you see a strong relationship among countries that don't spend all that much. So it makes a difference when you're not spending a lot. But once you reach a certain level, then the impact weakens. It's an interesting way to draw the graph. It goes up steeply, then it moves somewhat horizontally. What intrigues me in the Australian debate is that the people who argue that funding makes no difference are usually the people who've got kids in schools where their private investments suggest they think it makes a lot of difference. And the acknowledgement that that might be true more generally would undercut to some extent the public provisions for the kinds of school their kids are in. There's a lot of self-interest underpins some of the debate about funding. So if we connect back to Gonski and Gonski 2, this whole idea of needs-based funding, do we see some of that coming into play? Yeah, it was a very clever idea to try and make funding sector blind because all of our models were what do we do for public schools, what do we do for Catholic systemic schools, what do we do for independent schools? A needs-based model, if it's properly done, could become sector blind and The problem when it was first introduced that Julia Gillard had to face was the difficulty you would face if you redistributed funds away from schools that already had it uh, to to those that were seen to be um, more in need. So her model was none will lose and the only way to have a none will lose but more equitable funding is to just make the cake so much bigger so that you better fund the ones with few resources but deny nothing to mm. those that already have lots. And so it, it, in the end, it didn't get off because they never got the level of funding high enough. Now, Simon Birmingham, when he became minister, took the risk of redistributing. And I think one of the tragedies is the Labor Party didn't grasp that opportunity and say there are two issues here. One is the volume and one is the distribution. We'll support your redistribution and we'll argue for more overall, but we'll see that as a separate issue. And the Labor Party didn't do that. So we lost that opportunity, I think. Well, coming to, I guess, a little bit about your background, which is very interesting. And you went to a public school. Yeah, I went to a private public primary school in Brisbane, my local neighbourhood primary school. And then I moved on to the neighbourhood state secondary school, state high school, as they were called. Now, this was at a time when the government was beginning to build new secondary schools around the suburbs of Brisbane. So I was in the second intake when I went in at year eight, year nine, because we we had eight years of primary in those days. There was only one year ahead of me, not three years ahead of me. And one of the students in the year ahead of me was Peter Doherty, who did then veterinary science at the University of Queensland and later won the Nobel Prize in medicine. So served you well. It was a good school. It was a good school. And then in in the year behind me was George Negus, 
who went on to a lot of media fame. That was a good school. So how confident are you that bright kids, any kids, can do well in any school? Well, bright students are probably going to survive and get through. That's all right. But here's an interesting story from Poland. When we did the first OECD international comparisons in the PISA survey, Poland looked like a number of surrounding countries, the the Eastern European countries, the Middle Eastern European countries, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and so on, in that towards the end of primary school, around ages 10, 11, they tested students and then streamed them into very different schools. Now, they argued that by this means, we'll make the students in the school more like one another and have all the difference between schools, and that'll be better for the students. Well, that showed in the results. When we, when we looked at the data on where were the differences in the country between schools or within, there was Poland alongside Germany, Hungary, Austria, and so on, whereas at the other end of that distribution are the Scandinavian countries where there's almost no difference between the schools. All the difference among students is within schools. Well, between 2000, when we did the first PISA tests, and 2003, Poland abandoned selection. So in the 2003 data, Poland stood alongside the Scandinavian countries on that measure. That is, how much of the difference among students is between schools? And the answer was virtually none. Now, that only showed they did what they said they did, that they stopped selecting. What was more interesting was Poland was the only country that got better in the level of achievement on the three measures between 2000 and 2003. And then I wondered... I used to talk about that, actually, Mm. at various international meetings, and I wondered, will this be sustainable? What's going to happen in the longer run? Well, it turned out that initially, by stopping selection, Poland pulled up the performance of the lower-performing students, made it more equitable, and then they pushed up their whole distribution. And if you plot what's happened now, PISA data are gathered every three years, Poland, which was significantly behind the OECD average, is now significantly above the OECD average and has closed the gap on Australia. Mm. They're no different from us now. And how did they do it? They did it by making their schools comprehensive, genuinely comprehensive. The bright kids didn't suffer and the poorer performing kids did much better initially and then everybody did better. And my worry is that we have got a more and more stratified system here and that while we can say whatever the circumstance, the really bright kids will come through, we make it hard for the ones who are in disadvantaged circumstances. Uh, And there's one other piece of research on that question. What is the effect of the company students keep on their performance? So if you put bright kids with only other bright kids, is that going to elevate their performance? Well, it turns out that that effect is not uniform. There's a strong effect amongst disadvantaged and low-performing kids of being in only the company of disadvantaged and low-performing kids. There is very little effect on high-performing kids of being in the company of only high-performing kids. So if you make them more comprehensive, you're not going to affect the high-performing advantaged kids, but you are going to affect the low-performing and disadvantaged kids. Well, we hope you've enjoyed hearing those insights from Emeritus Professor Barry McGaw. 
And Kerry Elliott, who's been a valued colleague and done great work as director of MGSE's Network of Schools. Well, she's now heading off to one of Barry's former research homes, the ACER. We wish her all the very best. That's it for this time. Talking Teaching is a production of the University of Melbourne and it's recorded at the Horwood Studios. Gavin Neighbour is our sound engineer and the composer of our theme music. Bye for now. Bye for now.